Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Jude. And one of the resources that I wonder if people even know that they have, obviously we have the Come Follow Me uh, manual for individuals and families, but if you want something a little more extensive, then go to your app, and under Library, all you have to do is go to adults down below so library then adults then young adults <laughs> then institute students and when you go to institute students you will see all of the student manuals that they use for institute classes and new testament is religion 211 and religion 212 but i don't see them using those names anymore so if you are like my phone if your phone's like mine, you'll have one, two, three, four, five, six manuals on top. And then in the third row, you'll see New Testament Student Manual. And this is excellent and a little more in detail and a little more extensive. And this is what I have used in teaching Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, I have a physical copy, then I can mark it up and things, but you can get one of those. You can download it on PDF on your computer if you want, if you like that, or you can just use your phone. When I use my phone, I have to have my, my close-up glasses on all the time. But what I like about this is it gives us a little more detail. It also gives lots of quotes from living prophets and things like that. For example, I'm on page 512 where it says, Introduction and Timeline for First John, Second John, Third John, and Jude. And just this, these opening sentences help me kind of understand a backdrop. John and Jude wrote their epistles at a time when apostasy was threatening the church. Even though it had been only a few decades since the death of Jesus Christ, false teachers were teaching a doctrine different from that taught by the apostles. Some claimed that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh. Diotrephes, a local church leader, refused to recognize John's authority. John bluntly labeled those who taught false doctrine as being anti-Christ, and he encouraged church members to shun falsehoods and remain with him in fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jude warned the saints of ungodly men who had crept in unawares. As eyewitnesses of the resurrected Savior, John and Jude counseled the faithful on how they might resist false doctrines. Great backdrop right there. And one of the things that I really liked about the introduction, or about the first verses of John, first general epistle of John, chapter 1, verse 1, so 1 John 1, 1, is this sentence, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word, capital W, word of life. You'll remember that Jesus is called the word in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And I probably said this before, but ever since I heard that, I, I had a harder time saying, you know, how people say things like, oh my goodness, or oh my word. And now that I know that Jesus's name is the Word, I've had a hard time <laughs> saying that, even though I don't think that's what people mean most of the time. But what I, what I like about this is it's a very concrete testimony. John isn't saying that which I felt or that which, which I sensed 
or I had this inkling of inspiration. No, I actually heard, I saw with my eyes, I looked upon, my hands have handled. And then, verse 2, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and shew unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. Verse 3, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, it's a very concrete testimony. And some of the phrases that you see in John, you will hear in hymns. Then this is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So does that sound like him? There is in his sight no darkness at all. And I don't know, I'm fascinated by the teachings about light and dark, and I love the teachings about light. I love that Samuel the Lamanite's signs regarding the life of Christ, all involved light. And at the death of Christ, they were signs of darkness. What does light make it easier to do? It makes it easier to walk. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Now, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, If any man sin, and I always love to make this a little broader sounding, and if any woman sin, if any teenager sin, if any young adult sin, if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, if you've heard me talk before, you know that at least for the time being, my favorite of all of Jesus's nicknames is Advocate. I think sometimes we wonder if, if we kind of treat God or think of God or the Savior as a university professor that is disappointed with our performance or trying to make sure we fail tests that they write that are too hard or something like that. And instead, this word Advocate indicates somebody who is on our side. You know that song, Be still thy soul, the Lord is on thy side. An advocate, when I think of the word advocate, I think of three parties. There's, there's, an, there's one party and an advocate that is advocating for the one party to another party. And so there's three. And Jesus is our advocate with the Father. And if you've heard me talk before or maybe seen this talk, You've probably heard me mention that if you just Google Jesus Advocate and the artist Harry Anderson, you'll find a really beautiful painting. What I like about it is there is a man who is standing there at, it appears, the final judgment is what the artist is trying to depict. And his head is slightly bowed. He has that hat in hand posture. And the Savior is standing next to him with his arm around his shoulder. And what I love about this is that we actually have the script in Doctrine and Covenants section 45, verses, I think it's 3, 4, and 5, where listen to him who is the advocate with the Father who is pleading your cause before him, saying, and I'll let you go read that. We have the script of what's happening in this Harry Anderson painting. Another thing I noticed about these chapters was the word abide. 
Verse 6, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Verse 10, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light. Verse 28 of 1 John chapter 2, now little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. In the Christmas story, it speaks of shepherds abiding in their fields. To abide means to remain, to stay, to endure patiently, basically to be where you're supposed to be and stay where you're supposed to stay. And my favorite part about abiding in the Christmas story is to imagine that of all of the characters in the Christmas story, it seems like everybody knew what was happening except for the shepherds. It's everybody, I, by that I mean Mary, Joseph, the wise men, Jesus, obviously. Everyone knew what was coming. Herod and his priests didn't. And the shepherds didn't know, but they were abiding in their fields. And a comment that Sister Chieko Okazaki made, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but from a previous podcast, but Sister Okazaki said, I like, I hope we can all feel the strength of abiding in our fields over our flocks. And then she also said, Let's be where we are supposed to be so that angels know where to find us. Great comment. And if we are abiding, enduring, staying, remaining, the angels know where to find us. What I like about 1 John 2.28, when he shall appear, we may have confidence. Now I contrast that with what I think is the scariest verse in the entire standard works, in my opinion. Alma 12.14, which says, For our words will condemn us, yea, all our works will condemn us, and we shall not be found spotless, and our thoughts will also condemn us. And in this awful state we shall not dare to look up to our God. We would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us to hide us from his presence. So that's the opposite of standing with confidence before God. A couple of other places, a little nicer to read than Alma 12, 14, which I think is pretty scary, is in the story of Enos. Enos just has that one chapter. He goes out to, in the Book of Mormon, to hunt, suddenly loses all interest in hunting, and sets down his bow, as I imagine it, and begins to pray, and has this wonderful revelatory experience with the Savior. And here's what he said in the last verse of the book of Enos. I soon go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer, for I know that in him I shall rest. And I rejoice in the day when my mortals shall put on immortality and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure. And he will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. Amen. So that sounds like when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him. As 1 John 2.28 says, one more reference that kind of goes with this idea is in section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which, as you may remember, is one of the letters from Liberty Jail. And in verse 45 of 121, let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men, and to the household of faith, 
and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly, then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. Which sounds exactly like what John is saying. When we shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So how do we get that kind of confidence? Well, we just repent a lot and we keep striving on the covenant path. I was touched at Elder, or rather President, M. Russell Ballard's funeral that his son Craig Ballard said that as he was speaking with his father before he died, he said, am I clean? And then he answered, I am clean, I am clean. And he knew he was going back to the presence of God, eventually clean, which is, sounds like a great thing, a great confidence to be able to go out of this life with that kind of confidence. Continuing in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, He that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So there's that word abide again, but this time God will abide in us. And he'll stay and remain with us, which is awesome. Now, continuing in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Now, Craig Ballard also said about his father, President Ballard, that his favorite verse was John 14, 15, if ye love me, keep my commandments. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. I really like that line right there. If you look at the footnote in the second column at the very bottom, if you're using paper scriptures, it says they're not burdensome. They're not oppressive. In fact, to me, it seems like the commandments are brilliant. They're, they're a way to avoid so many problems. I think that you avoid so many bad consequences. It's also John who wrote, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. One way to think of that is to be free of some really bad consequences, because breaking commandments brings along with it a consequence. Everything we do has a consequence, and there are good consequences, and there are bad ones. And the commandments are not grievous, because you, you have a resulting peace that comes with it. And in the second epistle of John, which is only 13 verses long, in verse 6, it says, This is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard it from the beginning, ye should walk in it. So you'll hear that idea of our walk with God. And our Christian friends use that phrase a lot. And we should too, because we constantly talk about the covenant path and our walk on that path. The third epistle of John says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, is John talking about his own children, or is it the children of his brothers and sisters in the gospel, perhaps? I totally understand the verse, the sentiment there. If it's immediate family, there can also be a lot of pain. If our children do not walk in truth. And that's why that verse is kind of a kind of a hard one. 
I imagine that Lehi and Sariah had great joy that Nephi and Sam walked in truth, and also a lot of anguish that Laman and Lemuel did not. I imagine that God feels the same way about some that walk in truth and some that do not. For us, we can know that with our children, only a fullness of knowledge would bring a fullness of accountability. None of us really have a fullness of knowledge, and we have a, a merciful God, thankfully, that we can trust that will hold justice and mercy together perfectly. And lastly, in the book of Jude, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And that's what we can do as we think about our children, our walk, our walk in the light. And I love that John teaches so much about the word and light and abiding. And I hope this little 17 minutes has been useful to you and that we may one day appear with God, before God with confidence as John counsels. And we'll talk to you next time.